Good singing. Well, if you have your Bible, let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Uh, Tonight we could have looked at a number of verses, but tonight we'll launch from Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verses 19 and 20. We're going to also be looking at the ninth chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith on free will, and so I invite you to turn to page 925 in the back of the the hymnal if you uh, desire. You want to keep the Bible handy tonight. This is going to be more of a Bible study, and we're going to be relying heavily upon uh, Dr. Chad Van Dixhorn again and his commentary uh, on the Confession of Faith, uh, which is available in book form if you would like it in more detail. Deuteronomy chapter 30, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 19 and 20. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Bible, and we thank you, Lord, for the help of the Westminster Divines to labor long over many years, debating, writing in committee, discussing uh, these things so that they might put forward a confession of what the Scripture teaches for us. So, so Lord, we pray, help us tonight and bless this lesson to our better understanding of you, ourselves, and of your Son, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 30, uh, beginning at verse 19. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. And then here's the part that I think the divines would have us to focus on. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, and by holding fast to him. For this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. Amen. And then from the Westminster Standards, the Confession of Faith, Chapter 9, page 925 on the right-hand side of free will. Chapter 9 of free will. Section 1. God hath endued the will of man with that natural liberty that is neither forced nor by any absolute necessity of nature determined to do good or evil. Section 2. Man, in his state of innocency, had freedom and power to will and to do that which it was good and was well-pleasing to God, but yet mutably, so that he might fall from it. Section 3. Man, by his fall into a state of sin, hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good 
accompanying salvation, so as a natural man being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. Section 4. When God converts a sinner and translates him into the state of grace, he freeth him from his natural bondage under sin, and by his grace alone enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. Yet so, as that by reason of his remaining corruption, he doth not perfectly, nor only, will that which is good, but doth also will that which is evil. Section 5. The will of man is made perfectly and immutably free to good alone in the state of glory only. Well, Dr. Chad Van Dixhorn, in his commentary on the Confession of Faith, says that this chapter on free will, free will is a very simple doctrine, but it is also a very demanding doctrine. It is simple, but it is demanding. Historically speaking, Dr. Van Dixhorn notes that the very first section of this chapter actually, after much debate, had to be sent back to the committee for revision because they were wanting to be very careful as to what they were saying and what they were not saying when it comes to the subject of man's free will. What we want to do tonight is we want to talk about section one first, which is the natural liberty given to man being made in the image of God, and that that liberty is not forced in, uh, in, in any way. But then we want to look at how the will has been affected uh, by the fall and how it is affected by redemption and glorification. And so we will speak tonight of the will of man in the four, in the four estates of man, namely innocence, fall, redemption, and glorification. So let's talk, though, first about section 1. I'll read it again here so that we understand what we're talking about and what we are, are not necessarily saying. In section 1, you'll note it says, God hath endued the will of man with that natural liberty, that it is neither forced nor, by any absolute necessity of nature, determined to do good or evil. That is, we have liberty to make decisions. Now, I found that and its commentary by Dr. Van Dixhorn actually personally to be very helpful. Because I don't know if you are like me, but as one who tries to be a good Calvinist, I think to myself, free will, oh, but. Oh, but. We, we are fallen. And therefore, you know, maybe because we feel an allegiance to Luther in his writings against Erasmus. We say, oh, but the will is not free. It's enslaved, you know, by sin. But Chad Van Dixhorn um, brings forth, I think, in his commentary, 
First of all, we have to emphasize that man does have natural liberty. That man does indeed make decisions. Man does what he wants to do. And uh, in Matthew, he cites Matthew 17, 12, which I think is cited by the Westminster Divines in the uh, proof text, that they did to him, that is, they did to Jesus, whatever they wished, boys and girls. So men and women in Israel in Jesus' day treated Jesus badly because that is indeed what they wanted to do. They were not under duress. They made their own choices. You and I make our own choices. Okay, We make choices every day. Life is made up of decisions. Life is made up of, of choices. And you may choose uh, one thing and I may choose another. You may, you may choose to go to Chick-fil-A this week and I may choose McDonald's. No, I'm not going to choose McDonald's. <laughs> but you may choose and I may choose. But we are choosing freely, uh, not under any compulsion. We have been given this liberty by God. And I think this is very helpful. Because I think often, as Calvinists, we want to get to the qualification maybe too quickly. And we need to realize that man, not just in the estate of nature, but even still, today, after the fall, still has a natural liberty to do what it chooses to do. Now, having said that, of course, the will has powerful influences upon it. You choose what you do, choose freely, but we also have to recognize that we choose often what we choose because of various other influences. The desires of the heart, for example, influence us. You say, I don't like pepperoni. And so you choose not to have pizza. Uh, You may have even more complicated things and influences. Um, Dr. Van Dixhorn notes that, that sometimes our choices are influenced by the level of spiritual and intellectual understanding. One of the things that I thought was helpful in the uh, commenting on this section was that we are complicated. Uh, people are complex. And the will... Um, is affected by those complexities. Uh, decisions are, involve processes that are at work. And they are often, says, to quote Van Dixhorn, they are, quote, often shaped and prompted by our whole intellectual and emotional state at the time. Decisions are involved processes and are often shaped and prompted by our whole intellectual and emotional state at the time. And to put an exclamation point on the natural liberty of man, Van Dixhorn points out, these things are true, he says, in any state. These things are true in any state. That is, the fall does not impinge upon natural liberty. The liberty is still there, though, of course, it's been corrupted. And we'll get to that here in a moment, that that is one of the powerful influences in the decisions that people make. But 
Van Dixhorn is wanting to, I think, emphasize for those of us who want a quick jump to the bondage of the will, that, that we still do have a real liberty. Uh, if you look at James chapter 4, uh, excuse me, no, James chapter 1 and uh, verse 14 in your Bible, James chapter 1. And verse 14, I'll start it at verse 12, just for the sake of context. Blessed is a man, this is James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And then verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. And then notice verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, verse 15, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. So here we uh, see that we, even in, in our fallen condition, have this natural liberty and that we freely will to sin as sinners because of the power and influence of sin in our lives. Now, we know from our text in Deuteronomy chapter 30 that God can change our wills and he does so irresistibly in Christ by his grace. So God can, by his spirit, change us through the process of effectual calling. He regenerates us. And then you see in our text here, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, what are we told? I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I set before you, what? Life and death, the blessing and the curse. And so Moses says, choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. Now, let's talk here about the four estates of man, because that is next what your confession does here. Paragraph number one is talking about the natural liberty we have as being made in the image of God, that all of us are given this natural liberty. Then what you have in the following paragraphs is really the four estates of man that Augustine first brought out um, when he spoke of these four states. I'll repeat them again. Innocence is the first state that is prior to the fall, boys and girls. The first condition of man was that of innocence. Second condition is that of the fall, Adam and Eve's sin, and plunge the human race into sin. The fall Thirdly is redemption, that is, out of the fall, God uh, set his 
grace upon an innumerable elect that would be redeemed by Jesus Christ. And then finally, that elect would be glorified. Now, Augustine put it this way. In the state of innocence, man, that is, before Adam and Eve sinned, Adam and Eve were made righteous. They had the ability to do what is good. They had the ability to will what was right. But they also had the ability to do what was wrong. They had the ability to sin against God. And so Augustine put it this way, I'll spare you the Latin, but in English we would say that man had the ability to sin and the ability not to sin. Able to sin, able not to sin. That was the condition. Now the trouble that I think a lot of confusion happens uh, on this point in evangelicalism is that a lot of people, I think, take that state of innocency and almost assume that that's the condition which the natural man has presently when they offer the gospel. The ability uh, to sin and the ability not to. And, and we'll see here that that's not the condition that we find ourselves in today as we bring the gospel to the world. But that was the condition truly of Adam and Eve prior to the fall. They had the ability to sin. They had the ability not to sin. That, that is number one. Number two was the fall. Adam and Eve disobeyed, and they were, not, uh, they were not able not to sin. Okay, So that sin now is with them and us everywhere we go. Everything is tainted by corruption. Thirdly, you have the redemption, that uh, out of the fall, God has effectually called people to, him, to his Son, Jesus Christ, by the Spirit, and he gives them the ability not to sin. So when you are regenerated and the Holy Spirit breaks the dominion of sin in your life, you now have the ability not to sin. And then finally, the final state, glorification, is where we will one day be unable to sin. So our condition in our final state in Jesus Christ will be better than that of Adam and Eve. It's not paradise Restored. It's better than paradise restored. Okay, it's better than the condition Adam and Eve had prior to the fall. In fact, many theologians will argue that your condition right this moment is better than Adam and Eve before the fall, uh, because the work that God has begun and you will complete until uh, redemption, until the day of redemption. You will be glorified because of what Christ has already accomplished in your life, even though you and I are still every day struggling with sin. And you might think, there's no way my condition right now is better uh, objectively than that of Adam and Eve prior to the fall. Uh, there, that, there's no way. But yes, because of the work of Christ begun in your life embryonically, he, you, you are in a better objective state now in Christ uh, than Adam and Eve. Uh, will be. So let's talk about how, how is the will affected by all of this that we're talking about. Let's talk first about the innocence. All right, innocence. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 29 makes it pretty clear that God made man upright, period. All right, Adam and Eve were good, righteous, completely in their humanity. Everything about them was righteous. Their intellectual life, their emotional life, their will, their everything was Absolutely good in the sight of the Lord. Uh, 
However, they were, because of the liberty that was given to them, they had the ability to sin against God. And so that, of course, is what led to the fall. So man truly in the garden had the ability to choose whether to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or not to eat of it. And they chose to eat of it. They listened to the serpent. Um, as Van Dixhorn said, they filled their ears with the, the words of Satan and they filled their eyes with the fruit of the tree. And with that, they made the decision to eat of that fruit that God had said they should not eat of. And so that plunged us into the fall. And so we, in Adam, uh, find ourselves in a terrible uh, condition. Uh, we are, in Ephesians 2 puts it bluntly, we are dead in our sins and trespasses. Now, um, however, that does not mean even despite that the fall impacted everything about Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve, argues Van Dixhorn, and also the, the next paragraph here in the confession, <clears throat> that they had some sense still a, an ability to choose freely. But what do they do with that liberty to choose? And Van Dixhorn notes three things. Number one, they chose to hide from God. Number two, they chose freely to blame one another. Number three, they chose to evade the culpability and the responsibility for the sin. So what did Adam and Eve do with that liberty that they had? The liberty was corrupted now. And so now, choice after choice after choice is one that is spiritually bad and evil. They did not ask for forgiveness. They did not seek God's mercy. There is no contrition coming forth from them. And so what we find here is what the apostle picks up on in Romans 3, if you want to turn there. I think we looked at some of this uh, a week ago, but wouldn't hurt to do it again. Romans chapter 3, <clears throat> verse 10 and following, we find that because of the fall, now the condition of man is desperate. And so in verse 10 of chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, beginning in verse 10 and continuing on for many verses, strings together a number of Old Testament quotations, mostly from the Psalms, but some from other places, and he says, there's none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside together. Now, again, this is not denying the liberty of the will, but now it's saying, though, that the, the will, though, is now deeply impacted negatively by sin, so that now the will is corrupted. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God any longer. That is naturally, man uses his liberty to rebel against God. All have turned aside together and they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The 
poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, murderers, destruction, misery are in their paths. The path of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. One quote after another, after another, after another, showing us the true condition of man in his will. Jesus also tells us how desperate our situation is in John chapter 6. So if you want to talk to your Arminian friends, you want to remember Romans 3, you want to remember John chapter 6 here. Look at verse 44, John chapter 6. Verse 44, I'll just start at verse 43. Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. Why were they grumbling? They were grumbling because he said, I'm the bread of heaven. I'm the bread that comes down from heaven. You know, eat of me and you'll live, and don't eat of me, you die. And the audience doesn't like the message. And so Jesus makes this theological point in verse 44. He says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So what is Jesus saying here? He is saying that essentially man's will is so broken by the fall that if left to themselves, nobody chooses Jesus. Unless God intervenes, unless God from above by his spirit, does something upon that man or woman or boy or girl, they will always reject reject Christ. Nobody goes to Christ unless the Holy Spirit works in their life. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. How does the Father draw them? The Father does so, your confession, your catechism teaches by effectual calling. Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, right? Where He regenerates us, gives us all the benefits of Christ. Uh, Look at, then you want to remember verse 44, but then you also, you want to remember uh, verse 65. That's another one that you want to keep in your back pocket when discussing these things with your friends who may be struggling over, over this. As Calvinists, we're not denying the liberty. We're just saying that the liberty is is completely corrupted by the fall. Man is choosing truly and freely what he wants now in the fall. And that is always to reject Jesus Christ. It's always to reject God. Unless what? Well, look at verse here, verse 65 here. He said, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me. This is Jesus talking. No one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. And look, Calvinism was as popular then as it is now. Look at verse 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and started an Arminian church. And they were not walking with him anymore. They don't like this teaching. Jesus is saying, nobody comes to me unless what? Unless it's been granted. Unless God does something first. Unless God extends grace. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, you don't have to turn there, but the Apostle Paul says something similarly. Similarly, He said, no one accepts the things of the Spirit without the Spirit's help. 
The word of God is spiritually appraised. And unless the spirit of God enables you to enlighten your mind and works on the hardness of your heart and gives you a heart of flesh, you will not rightly discern the things of God. And this is why you can have people who get PhDs in religion and teach religion 101 and they don't know the essence of the gospel. It's like doing this in front of a blind man. Because the Bible is brought about by the Spirit of God and only the Spirit of God working on an individual can give that individual the understanding of what the Spirit has written and inspired. So the Spirit inspires the Word written, but the Spirit has to work on the audience in order to receive what He has written. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit by nature. We do not choose the things of God by nature, but we find them by nature unpleasant because, like Adam and Eve, we are hiding We're blame-shifting. We're evading responsibility for our sin. And we're evading culpability for our sin. We we are doing the exact same thing as Adam and Eve. Unless God's grace intervenes. One more uh, here. Titus uh, chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. You can find that in the pastoral epistles. After Thessalonians and Timothy... 1 and 2, now Titus, Titus chapter 3. And look at verse 3 to 5. Titus 3 to 5. Titus 3, 3 to 5. For we, verse 3, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Now, did we have a liberty when we were unbelievers? Oh yeah, we chose to do a lot of that stuff. Uh, Spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But then notice verse 4, but when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration, and the renewing by the Holy Spirit. Do you see what Paul is saying to Titus? People choose to do evil, verse 3, of their own free will, but when God's grace regenerates a sinner and gives them a new life in Jesus Christ, a life from above, causing them to be born again by the Spirit of God from above and renews them by the Spirit of God, they choose Christ. But God is the one who must work first. The Spirit of God is the one who draws us irresistibly by His grace to the Lord Jesus Christ. The problem with uh, our, our will, apart from Christ, is that our character is desperately flawed by the fall. And so our decisions flow from our character. And our character is undisputably wicked, especially when it comes to the things of the Lord. Now, you say, but pastor, I am a Christian, and the dominion of sin has been broken in my life. So where do I stand with regard to my will 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, here's where I think Paul comes back into play in Romans chapter 7. This is a very famous chapter. If you're not familiar with it, I encourage you to become familiar with it. Now, this chapter is debated among Bible-believing, God-fearing, loving people. The debate, though, is, is Paul talking as a Christian in this chapter or as a non-Christian? I believe he is speaking here as a Christian. And I think what Paul is doing here, now the reason some people don't think he's talking as a Christian is because the language sometimes is so strong. It, you think, well, Paul has to be talking as a non-believer. This is not something that a Christian would necessarily say. I disagree. I think he is speaking uh, realistically about what goes on in our lives. I think he's speaking very realistically about the tension that we feel as believers between the desire to follow Jesus Christ and the work of the Spirit in our life and the remaining corruption that's still there uh, in, our, in our life. So if you look, for example, um, uh, let's, let's just go down to verse 14. Romans 7, verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual. He says, but I am, I am of flesh sold into the bondage of sin. For, I, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. Now, if you've ever sinned, which I know you have as a Christian, there, no doubt you have sinned at times, and you said to myself, why did I do that? Why did I just do that? I knew that was wrong. I knew that was evil. Um, it, wasn't, you know, it wasn't for a lack of knowledge on my part, and yet I still did it. Um, I think Paul is being very honest here. He says, I am doing the very thing I hate, but if I do the very thing I, excuse me, but if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. And I think this is a description of what it's like for a believer who is living between two worlds, who is living in the world that is fallen and of which he or she is a part of that fallen world. But what? God's grace has intervened into their life. And now they feel this conflict. Paul describes it in Galatians 5. He, the, that the lust, excuse me, that the spirit lusteth after the flesh and the flesh after the spirit, that there is this war taking place within us. I know from experience and talking with some of you, some of the things that you desire most about dying and going to be with the Lord is that the conflict will finally be over in your life. That this this feeling this daily tension between wanting to serve Christ and yet feeling at the same time that you want to do terrible things. And that this tension is, is, is there and that every time I try even uh, to do that which is good, I find evil present with me. Verse uh, 21. Oh, I just said it. I find then the principle that evil is present in me 
the one who wants to do good. See, I don't think that a believer, unbeliever would say that. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am. I, I feel that regularly, don't you? You know, the holier you get, the worse you feel sometimes. The more you grow in grace. You, know, you were a young Christian. You thought you had it all together. And then as God matured you and showed you more and more of his law and more and more of your sin, you realize it's just the opposite. Who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, um, in, in the redeemed state, the believer, we have this ability not to sin. Yes, we are tainted by the fall still. We are not uh, delivered entirely from the effects of the fall. But now we do have a new operating principle within us, the Holy Spirit. So that by God's grace, through the Spirit, with the help, through the Word, we are able not to sin. There is no temptation but that which is common to men, Paul says. But God has provided for us a way of escape. So we have the ability, by God's grace, to choose not to sin. We are able now not to sin. Prior to knowing Christ, as it pertains to the things of Christ, we, we're not able not to sin. Um, we would continually do that which is evil, as the book of Genesis said. When God wiped out that generation, they were continuing towards evil Always. Now, by the work of the Spirit, through Christ, we are able, by God's grace, not to sin. We are no longer under the dominion of sin. The dominion is broken. But the present reality of sin is still with us. And therefore, we cry out, wretched man that I am. Now, however, there is great news. And that is that, as I said earlier, he who began this work in you will complete it to the day of redemption. There is relief coming. There's joy in the morning. Though the night brings sorrow even unto death, we die, but yet what? It is better to be absent from the body and present with the Lord because we will be brought into a new state in Jesus Christ in that your soul will now be purified and glorified in glory and now you will be unable to sin. You, you will, whereas sin is dominion is broken in this life, it is eradicated in the life to come. And so we will, we will serve um, God with as much alacrity as an angel. There, we will feel no resistance within ourselves as we serve God. Whereas presently we feel... The, the sin and the weight of sin and even terrible sins. You know, sometimes we, we are tempted to blaspheme God and do terrible, think terrible things about God and say terrible things. But we, we, that will be completely destroyed in the world and glory to come. Our character will be perfected finally in Jesus Christ in glory. Let me just show you a few places for you, this is the Westminster Divines give us about four verses here. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13, this is one of their proof texts for your future glorification. And 
deliverance from the effects of sin altogether. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 13. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4.13, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. What is he saying here? Essentially, it's a way of saying that until we reach that state of glorification, Paul speaks of it as the state of a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to Christ himself. That is, you will be like Christ in, in your being. In Hebrews chapter 12, I think you know where that book is, Hebrews chapter 12, and verse 23, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. See what the author of Hebrews is saying? He is saying, you guys have come to the heavenly Jerusalem where God is, and who else is with God? It is the spirits who have been made perfect. People who have been glorified in heaven. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2, the Westminster Divines Wanted us to look at this verse as well. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. 1 John 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it is not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him. Well, what's Jesus like, boys and girls? Jesus is glorified in body and soul. We will be like Christ. Because we will see him just as he is. That hasn't appeared just yet. But we will one day be glorified together. And, you know, this congregation will meet each other in heaven and we'll say, wow, look at you. <laughs> in Jude, verse 24, this is the last one, we'll close. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Blameless with great joy.